Watching the women's marathon in Tokyo, the announcers couldn't help but to label and try to put Melindy Elmore into the box that she is a 41-year-old athlete and a mother of two. They're saying it because it's not the norm. It's incredibly impressive, but put simply, Melindy is so much more than these simple two-dimensional definitions. She competed in Athens in 2004 in the 1500, only to return to the game 17 years later as a marathoner to finish ninth. By anyone's standards, this is an incredible effort. But what I've learned in a short time with Melindy is this, that that outcome wasn't something she was really focused on. She focuses heavily on her process. She has a physical wisdom that embodies the term athlete. Her mindset enables her to overcome the pain of an event like the marathon, and her mantras enable her to tune in to her own performance. World-class athletes are not only resourceful, but also operate at a frequency that many listening to this would consider rare. Melindy Elmore is a national treasure, and we're thrilled at Kinetics to welcome her as one of our first Athlete Ambassadors. Melindy, welcome to the Human Kinesome Project podcast. Firstly, thank you so much for doing this. I can only imagine the demands on your time right now um, after the Olympics. This must be incredible, right? It actually hasn't been as as bad as I had anticipated. I think everyone thinks that I'm really busy, so they've been leaving me alone, which is kind of nice, actually. Um, but I do work. So like I work at UBC and I've got some online clients and I've got my kids. So it's been nice to focus on, yeah. on that stuff. Um, I'll tell you what, the highest use of Slack in our company, I think, was the messages flo- floating around when you were in race. Um, <laughs> we were just glued. Everybody was glued. And there's this one question. Our president said something to the effect of, what happened to your red hat? You lost, like, we saw you in one frame, had the hat on, you were easy to find, and then all of a sudden, she's gone. Where, where's the hat? What happened? <laughs> uh, you know what? I didn't realize how many people were counting on that red hat. I've had so many people say, thank you for wearing that red hat. We were able to spot you because of it. Um, and it wasn't, I never thought of that. It was just our team issued yeah. hat that came with our uniform. So, I swapped hats four times in the race. It was at one of the personal aid stations in a cooler. Um, so about every, I, I don't even remember at the, it was at the, the 26, the 16, 26, 36 K station. Um, Chris would hand me a new cap with ice in it and ice water. Um, anyways, uh, with about mm, a mile to go, I just suddenly decided that hat was annoying me. <laughs> and I just threw it to the side of the road. And I had this um, this immediate image of Simon Whitfield, if you recall, in, hmm. I think it was 2008 in Beijing. So he had won the gold medal in 2000 in Sydney, and then Athens wasn't his best year. And then he came back in 2008 and won a silver medal. And he was coming down to the final sprint with about 500 meters to go in a one-two three race for the medals and he threw off his hat and then just took off to catch the guy for second. And I thought of him and that I was like, I'm throwing my hat and I'm going to go for it. <laughs> but there was no one to catch. I, it. It wasn't I was just hanging on. But I also had tossed my sunglasses a bit, a couple kilometers before that. You get to a point where you're just like, this is so hard. I need to change something about the way I'm doing. I'm going to get rid of my hat. I'm going to get rid of my glasses. Oh, I love it. And um, so I'll give you my, um, my connection to the marathon is 
is twofold. One, I wrote a paper about it in the first year of my undergrad. That was the topic I selected because I was such a you know Australian rules football cricket guy that nope, you got to pick another sport. So the history of the marathon was what I wrote a paper on. Then I finally ran one in mm-hmm. two thousand. I ran Paris. Uh, a buddy of mine said, "Hey, let's stretch you a little bit," and so. My buddy was, you know, he's a big wig in corporate circles and he said, oh, I'll get a coach. And so he gets a hold of Jeff Galloway. And I remember being on this speakerphone, you know, to talk about how, you know, how we're going to plan for the race. There's about six of us running this race. And Jeff says to me, Gary, give me your running history. And I said, well, mate, I said, I played baseball at a pretty high level. So um, I run 90 feet and I turn left. If I'm lucky, I get to turn left again, run another 90 feet. Now, how long is this race? You know, it was one of those discussions, right? So... 12 weeks and then go and run Paris and not understand like, oh man, the Lucasade, I think it was the drink would just, and their cobblestone roads. It was insane. The amount of people that were just wiping out at all these breaks. Right. So I loved it so much. Loved the training, loved the discipline, loved the planning. I always, and I ran this in 2000. So that's 21 years ago. Right. So I said, when I forget the pain, I'll run another one. Yeah. I still remember the pain. <laughs> So I haven't started down that path, but um, mate, d- diving in here, I, I'm really curious, and this is kind of a couple of questions in one, but you know, it's been 17 years between Olympic Games for you. Take us to those minutes before the race started. Was there fear? Were you looking at this going, you know what, um, did time kind of evaporate between that run in, at, in 2004? versus the run in, in 21 now, what, what was in your head the few minutes before the starters gun went? You know, I, I didn't expect to be back at this level in sport again until only the last year or two. And so I'd really moved on in life from being a high-performance athlete just to being a lifelong athlete. Like I did triathlon in the meantime. I got back into running because I love to run. I love to move. I yeah. I love to compete. But it wasn't that I had this, I was harboring this oh my gosh, I need to get back to the Olympics and finish, you know, and and take care of undone business. So I was definitely really nervous leading into this race. There's been, there was a lot of buildup over the last year and a half. Are there going to be an Olympics? Is COVID going to shut things down? Exactly. Right. And as we got closer and closer, okay, they're not going to cancel the Olympics. It's a go managing my own health. Just, you know, you have to show up not injured on the day. Then as nervous as I was in the final two weeks, leading into the race as my coach on on site said he he said I had my game face on a lot I just tried again to focus on being really grateful for this opportunity to be back and as nervous as I was about expectations around my own performance oh my gosh there's an Olympics happening I'm fit I'm healthy and I get a chance to do this again after 17 years so whatever comes of it is going to be a good thing that's amazing that notion of gratefulness it's amazing the constructive energy that comes from that i've seen that with so many athletes uh, experienced it personally you've retired at one point how do you make a decision to unretire was there or or was it that hey you shifted into this lifelong athlete kind of i'm going to continue to run and don't label me as retired or was it no i'm definitely retired from competition i i'm coming back out Tell us about that a little bit, if you can, Melindy. What was the, uh, was there an impetus? Was there a, something that just hit you one day that you said, hey, my identity is tied to this. I need to, I need to express that. 
I actually don't really feel like my identity is tied per se to, to having to do sport and compete and perform. It's more, it's deeper than that. It's just who I am. But, and I guess you could say that's identity, but I feel like identity is more an external factor of how people view you versus how, how you view yourself. So I need to exercise and move to feel good. And by extension of that, I love to compete and see how good I can be, but they're not always the same thing. So in my retirement, I continue to be active because I like to move. So I would ride a bike. I would go for long bike rides and explore the Okanagan Valley, um, do some open water swims in the lake. You know, just, just that's part of what's fun for me on a daily basis. But I also do love to also join events and be part of that energy of, of doing a triathlon or doing a mass road race, that sort of thing. And, and I'm good at them. That's part of the way my body is built is I can push myself pretty hard and I can get good results. And then that fuels a desire to see how good I can be. And if I can be better and the next thing, you know, I'm in the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. There's been a transition for you, not only that, you know, to, to kind of unretire and come back, uh, come back and run at such an elite level. But there was another moment that I learned about you that endurance was never really on your radar, right? It was, you know, you were doing other events was there an attraction to doing something in the endurance sector or was that just that natural flow on like, I like to go for a run. I like this distance. I can survive this distance. How did that, how did that come about? Yeah. If I, if I think back 20 years when I was in university, I was probably the least likely person to turn into an Ironman marathon competitor. I thought people, one who did them were a bit crazy. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek now that I am one of them and my friends are, but two, to actually race them at a high level was just mind boggling to me. You know, when I thought about like even 10 years ago, what Shalene Flanagan, who was a kind of a, a contemporary of me, mine on the track who ran in, ran into, you know, winning New York marathon and six in Rio at the Olympics. And I remember saying to a friend one day, I can't believe she can run 330 or faster per kilometer pace for 42 kilometers. That's crazy. Yeah. Again, it wasn't that I had set out with this lofty goal of running these times. It just evolved naturally. And I, I wanted to do a marathon for the sake of a bucket list. Like, oh, that's my friends are doing it for fun. Let, let me sign up and do one to say I've done it kind of. And then yeah. I did find the training really uh, addictive and came to me quite naturally. And, and then the race itself, my first marathon, uh, Houston 2019. So that this Olympics mm -hmm. is only my third, but each time I've learned so much and I've um, there's so much opportunity for growth still. And I don't think that it's something that you ever feel like you completely master. So it just keeps you coming back for more. Right. There's things like in, in the distance work that I've done. And when I talk to endurance athletes, I mean, they find you find this kind of frequency to operate on both mentally and physically. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Like your mindset during the course of a race, how does that, like, are there definite moments that you're recalibrating mind-body um, at different markers? Are there, like, and, and when you're building in, like, the strategy of the race, how does that mindset from the gun has gone off to crossing that finish line, how does that work during the course of this? Is there a lot of alteration? Well, it ebbs and flows as you go. Um, but I think the important thing is that your mind and your body are always working together, and 
well, when I say together, maybe they're working against each other, but you're trying to get them to work mm-hmm. together, right? Yeah. Um, so there's lots to think about, and it's just a constant check-in. How am I doing? Is this right? How am I feeling? And I think what some of the cool things are, you know, when people talk about finding flow or mindfulness, and you're just completely mm-hmm. absorbed in the task in the moment, that's what that's what it's like in a marathon. And, and as you go through yeah. rough patches, you're still very much in the moment, and you're trying to figure out how with – with your mind, you can make your body feel better. So it might be taking in some fuel or some hydration or cooling yourself or adjusting your pace. Or in the case of this last marathon, I really had worked on some sort of mantras and, and some mental strategies mm-hmm. leading in. So it it's funny, um, obviously a podcast people can't see, but I've got a list of words here in front of me that I had written leading into the race that I... I felt like I was cramming for an exam. I brought them to the warm up and I was just kind of reviewing them and mattress like patience is power, be a fighter. Um, even, even just thinking about my children. So when it got challenging for me, it was like my mind went to where I wanted it to be. And I started automatically thinking these things that I had sort of practiced. And that, that really, really helped, especially the last five, seven kilometers when it was really hot. I was really tired. I was really ready to be done. And it gave me something to mull on and to keep me moving forward positively. Tough environment in Tokyo too, right? I mean, I've spent a fair bit of time there working in baseball and uh, it's not even the degree of humidity. What I've experienced, and and it might've been different on the day, but I just always experienced this thick air kind of feeling like there's nothing, the air's not moving around me. It just, it was hard, like it's hard to breathe when you're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. So knowing what you were going into with the heat and everything, were there acclimation strategies prior to the race? Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, we were actually in Sapporo, so we were a thousand kilometers north of Tokyo, but it didn't really make any difference. The heat and humidity, they had hoped that it would, but we were in a bit of a heat heat wave up in in the north um so we arrived 15 days before the race to do some acclimating and we practiced a lot our cooling plan with ice fest leading you know as in the days leading in and what i was going to take at what station so as i mentioned earlier changing out my hat multiple times um so i had an, an ice hat taking towels ice um all sorts of things that that help but the biggest thing is just being there in enough time to try to get your body used to it and it was really hard even a 20 30 minute run uh, especially initially finishing you're drenched and you're thinking well how am I supposed to run way faster for you know two and a half hours and it was very hot I heard a podcast this morning and they they mentioned they referred to the race as being decently warm or something. I thought, no, 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 no. It wasn't decently warm. It, at 5 a.m., it was 28 degrees and 80% humidity. You go run a marathon in that and tell me if that's decently yeah, warm. Yeah, that's not decent, mate. That's miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a better better word to use and, around. And we, had, we didn't have any, any cloud cover that day. It was a sunny day. So you can see if you watch the race in the, in the early parts of the race, there was a, a fair amount of shade coverage. So we're all trying to stick to the side of the road where there's shade and that gradually disappears, especially when there are buildings and, and that you really felt it in that, that exposed part of this course. Yeah. Incredible. So you currently hold the women's record uh, for the marathon, uh, Canadian women's record. Tell me about physical systems. Like when you're looking ahead, if you were looking to like in your planning up to Tokyo and looking forward, 
One of the things is like our practitioners, I always have discussions with them around are trying to understand what we'll call rate limiting factors for performance. Do you kind of dive into those and say, you know what, like you just said, I've got my head and my body kind of lined up. Those things are working really well. But you know what, boy, um, I've got a musculoskeletal imbalance that I feel like I've got to work on to get that time down. Or is it that I've got to get some more peak interval kind of stuff to really shunt that VO2 part of the equation so i've got a uh, got a sprint kind of capacity in there when you analyze yourself physically what what's the thing that you would look at and go you know what i'm going to work on this is this is what i want to change is there anything well the biggest limiter to me over all my years has been injury prevention and i've had I've had plenty of injuries. Um, when I was in my 20s, I, I would get bone injuries and that really significantly negatively impact my yeah. potential and career in my 20s. Um, I, you know, I missed the Olympics in 2008 because of a navicular stress fracture. Um, and that changed over the years uh, where now the, what I've been battling with in the last year and a half is uh, hamstring tendinopathy high hamstring, which is really common, especially for women in their 30s, 40s, more mature runners. So in the last year, I have worked a lot and really hard with a one-on-one with a strength and conditioning coach in Kelowna, Chris Collins, and that's helped a ton. So doing doing real weight, weights, deadlifts, heavy weights, uh, eccentric loading, that sort of thing, and some plyometrics for, you know, generating good force. And you'd think that, well, you don't, need that in the marathon per se that you know that force and that power Mm. but you do to stay healthy and to keep your tendons and and everything working to their to their full potential so i I was saying to him yesterday when i was in my hamstring is no longer uh a, a limiter or concern to me there was about a year where i could feel it it would tweak if i did anything mm. too fast or did hills or if i changed my load too much i would immediately get that that feedback my hamstring would tighten up i don't that yeah. right now is really well managed i think that's you know managing injuries is probably the the hardest yeah. but the best way to become a better athlete because then you're you're able to have consistent training over a long period of time and that's ultimately what's going to yeah. lead to improvement yeah we often use the term in in team sports in elite team sports that the best ability is availability right make sure you're ready to go out and, and perform so yeah the injury yeah. reduction side of the equation is something i focused heavily on and as 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 even our team at kinetics you know when we're looking forward and looking at data projection you know I don't like the term prediction of injury because I really think it's it's always multifactorial. There's so many things we can't predict, but boy, if we can identify risk due to change of center of pressure in one foot versus the other, and even see, you know, potentially when you have a like a loop of like pain, you know, say the pain reemerges in the hamstring, has your foot uh, identification off the ground? Has that changed any? So those are the mm-hmm. things that we look at a lot. But uh, yeah, look, I, I hear you on the injury side. But I want to go back, like you said, women who are being lifelong athletes. I mean, you've got um, kinematic, I think, variability and also even hormonal variability that goes into kind of athlete planning, right? And so one of the things I remember working with Duke women's basketball team, and they had a lot of ACL injuries. And a lot of it mm-hmm. came down to Q angle coming out of the hips. And these were collegiate athletes, you know, 18 to 22, there's so many things you have to manage differently as as a female in 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 a race, and even things like you know your like hormonal challenges 
that you that you may face um, either through uh, you know a menstrual period or anything like that. Do you do you ever like in in that planning? Do you like look hormonally first and go, okay, here's the pattern, here's what I've got to regulate or or change and alter prior to uh, competition? Are there very is I'm trying to look at the variability in, in your training from a standard, you know, from say, if, if I was to go out and start running and planning, you've got, I think, more to deal with than I do. How, how do you approach that side of the equation? How do you put it all together? To me, it's a, it's, it's a mosaic of uh, information. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of emerging talk about uh, how women are not small men, to coin the term from uh, Dr. Stacey yeah. Sims. And a lot of people are becoming more aware that that there are nuances of of female athlete and all those those ways you describe, um, and that for the majority of studies, scientific peer reviewed studies are done on on male the male control groups, right? So how yeah. how do women in anything like high performance data is derived from men and applied to women? So. For for starters, being aware that there is a difference, I think, is a good starting point. Secondly, the biggest and probably and most important factors, aside from like the micro details of managing hormonal fluctuations and and getting really detail oriented, is that that a healthy female athlete regularly has a period, and that is the most important factor to look at. And and there used to be sort of a a myth perhaps that you were really, if you're really fit, then it, it would disappear and that's okay because that meant you were fit. That's, that's not okay. Um, and lots of science will show that's, that's not a healthy body that we're dealing with. So a healthy body is one that is regular and a healthy body is one that is getting enough fueling and nutrition to support both their training and their normal, their normal cycles their normal hormonal uh, influences. So that if I, if there's one message that I would want to share with any audience of coaches or athletes is that if if women are not getting their periods they need to reduce their their load and into and increase their fueling their their food look at that sort of thing work with a doctor that's key and otherwise it leads to injury it leads to to bone injury underperforming and etc etc look i couldn't agree more um my wife say um She's a sports nutritionist and she's a lecturer at Arizona State University. And we have these discussions around, you know, and you, you coined it perfectly. It's like we take we take all these studies on men and, and try to downstream, you know, for the female athlete. And it's it's so different. I mean, biomechanically, kinematically, physiologically, hormonally, and a loss of period. She was one of the first ones who explained this to me. Loss of period is not a good thing, especially especially for the potential of bone injury. Right and and managing that, especially that long term stress. So, yeah, it's um I think it's a super important uh, point to underline, and I think um I think overall it's it's almost like there's not enough studies being done because even the format of the studies we have are governed for some sense of you know hey we did a nine week study of athletes you know eighteen to twenty two well that's fantastic great. But now, like, what about our older athletes? How do we how do we apply, you know, really good research and even do more research into you know an athlete who's thirty and older? You know, what does that look like? Um, mm-hmm. So I think you nailed. I think I think we underserve our community um, dramatically, and a lot more studies need to be done. 
Yeah, and I think things are changing. I think there's a response in the in the research community and and in the application of it. Um, I'm at least maybe because I'm tuned in as a coach and an athlete, but I'm seeing really good work coming out of uh, Canadian universities and labs and some leaders like Dr. Trent Stellingworth and Louise Burke of Australia, Katie Kate Ackerman Ackerman and I think yeah. in Boston and at Harvard. Yeah, um, they are putting on conferences. They're publishing. They're they're sharing. There's some you know you know some open access um, work being done in the area of Reds reduced energy deficit syndrome for people and it's not just siloed to research um it's mm. it's really trying to get out there into the community um and i and i personally have been requested to participate in more research projects in the last year or two on all areas of reds and pregnancy and postpartum recovery yeah. and you know all those yeah. all those areas that absolutely were lacking you know when i had my first son oh. He's seven and a half, and I spent a day at the university lab or the university library trying to look up research on uh, how to how to tra- what's the appropriate amount of training to do while pregnant that's safe. There's nothing, <laughs> and now yeah. now I've been contacted multiple times to engage in this kind of research. So that's really exciting. That is exciting, and yeah, it's so underserved. I had a friend who was looking into ex- trying to find the exact same data uh, a long time ago, and she goes, "You know, there's nothing out here about you know even postpartum training or you know in training during pregnancy. You know what's right, what's wrong, and there's this I think archaic kind of um, let's put you in cotton wool, let's sit you down, you know, let's put your feet up. I think there's an archaic kind of um, association uh, that comes with pregnancy, post-pregnancy, and ah, look, a whole lot of probably societally governed or driven, you know, labels that are put on you around that period in time too, right? That that could alter uh, alter training progression. Um, so yeah, look, it'll be it'd be great to see you unpack that. But Melindy, something you said to me there too, I want to I want to bring into um, your coaching. Yeah, so as a coach, I mean, what did you learn about yourself as an athlete? that you know as an athlete that you bring into your coaching? If you have to say, hey, this makes me different as a coach, is there one thing or are there a couple of things that you've brought in? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Being a coach, being an athlete helps me be a better coach and being a coach helps me be a better athlete. It's it's uh, two ways. And I think one of the biggest things is really um, truly trusting the process and trusting if you've done the work that you should be prepared to to bring it on race day. And I used to, as an athlete, have a lot more doubts, I'd say, in my ability to execute and whether the training would actually bring the outcomes that, that I desired. And now I know if I do the training, I should be able to count on myself to bring the performance. And I expect that of my athletes. And I see that of my athletes. If I've done a good job preparing them, then for the most part, they should be able to to have great races, barring any mm-hmm. unusual circumstances. So now, you know, when I see certain workouts that I can perform, I know that's an indicator of what I should be able to do. And I think that really helps. And it also really helps me coaching. It just, I guess it feels like a, uh, maybe integrity is is the word I'm looking for, but I, I expect a high level of performance from my athlete and I want them to be able to do that on race day because I, it's it's a character 
it's a character trait. It's also the training, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, if I expect that of them, I have to be willing to to show the same uh, on my in my own performances. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And uh, look, I, a lot of what you said was similar for me to transition from an athlete into into a coaching role. So. I kind of feel that. And I always look to, it's it, it like empathy is the very first thing you have, right? I mean, it's that you understand where they are on their journey and, and what mm-hmm. that process is going to be. But something you said um, in that statement too, doubt. Let's talk about that a little bit. One of the moments for me, and it was ironic that it was just brought up in um, Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, um, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing you may have that somewhere. Um, one of the things that, uh, he tried to unpack was from a 1999 um, ACSM conference. And I'm old enough that I remember this and I was actually there. It's not like, you know, hey, yeah, were you at Woodstock? If you, th- if you say you were there, you, you know, it's probably a lie because you wouldn't have remembered, right? Um, but <laughs> 1999 ACSM convention, I'm there and I forget the presenter's name, but he talked about this yeah. central governor theory. And it was really interesting to me Central, there you go. There's the book. Melinda just showed the book. Um, so central governor theory. This thing was like kind of game changing for me because it helped. I took that and made applications to that into professional baseball. I thought immediately that if I want a guy to throw harder, what are the innate restrictions on him throwing that ball faster and harder? And it was really, it came down to, okay, well, let's hack the system here. Let's go in and build the brakes better so that we can get above what's preventing that velocity and acceleration do you like your understanding of that and and a lot of a lot of athletes i talk to a lot of coaches i talk to sometimes that word doubt is the initial um it's a mental kind of layer that you've got to get beyond to have the physical expression beyond that tell me a little bit how firstly recognition of that secondly how do you deal with it well, boy, that's a complex question. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, because we're, to our detriment at times, we're such intelligent and complex beings, right? And um, exactly. it, to, to unravel all the psychology to get to best performances at times can absolutely be be the hardest task. Um, and you'll see lots of genetically gifted athletes who underperform and you wonder why they can do it in training and they can't do it in competition. So what's going on? And so really the true athlete is one that can maximize themselves physically and emotionally, mentally, psychologically. Right. Um, so how, how do you, how do you deal with, with getting past doubt? Um, for, for me, it was just probably came a, a, as a, function of being in this sport long enough to to see to see the feedback loop that if I put in this kind of training then I I'm at this level and also having confidence in myself like I did leading into Tokyo that you know generally speaking I'm a good performer when it, when the stakes are high I can think back to lots of examples where I met or exceeded my expectations at championship races at big at high stake races I'm not actually someone who's good year round or who's can run amazing time trials on my own or does kind of weird one-off spectacular things that people think like, how the heck did she run 10 K in February that fast on her own? If you look back, Mm -hmm. I ran pretty mediocre, um, 
road races through the winter. And then I'd listen to some podcasts of people analyzing, you know, who's going to do what for performance. And I mean, based on my training, I, I guess I would agree with people saying that I wasn't looking like I was going to do anything spectacular in Tokyo, but it's all part of the big macro picture. You don't want to be peak fitness year round anyways. Um, anyway, so, so again, like getting back to the doubt piece is just, I think, incrementally building confidence over a long period of time through races, through performance, through training and working with younger athletes is a little bit more challenging because they maybe don't have that huge body of experience to draw on. And so we need to maybe work more conscious sports psych tools, Mm -hmm. visualizing. But I mean, as you saw earlier, as I mentioned, I I did write some mantras. I, I relied on that in my race. So it's teaching probably these skills to younger athletes so that they can start to, to kind of move together with their physical development. They're working on their emotional resilience toolbox at the same time. Right. And it's, there's this element of kind of risk that's part of the equation, I think, in any kind of training, right? It's like, if you're working with an athlete, you want them to explore the next kind of the, everyone says, oh, the next level. Well, what is that level, right? If, if someone's doing something repeatedly, consistently, it's like, how do I shunt them? How do I break that, you know, ceiling and move them forward? And sometimes that is an element of risk uh, quotient, really, really calculated risk. For me, it was massively calculated risk um, because I'm dealing with athletes that are you know, worth $100 million to an organization. So <laughs> I had to be really you know, I was conscious of this the whole time that I can take more risks in the off season and I can in season, you know, to keep them healthy and available, but risk and applying that risk to training, like having uh, an overspeed day or a greater distance day or things like that. And to get that feedback and have it positively check the box so that they can build that as part of the foundation. Is that something you plan in for your athletes? Do you plan in any sense of, okay, um, i got to, like, is there one athlete that you think of uh, that you've known that's even like, let's use risk to break capacity here? You know what? I probably err more on the side of caution still than, than, than that point. Cause I think there's still a lot of low hanging fruit with younger athletes just in managing, like we talked about earlier injuries, being consistent. I think the biggest breakthrough for younger athletes is just consistent training over a period of time is going to bring them breakthrough results yeah. without doing anything crazy. And even myself leading into Tokyo, we erred on the side of being conservative in a lot of our, mm. in the execution of the plans. So we, we went with sort of a tried and true formula that had worked for me in my past two marathons. We bumped up the mileage um, a little bit, maybe 5%. The most important thing was arriving to the start line bit and healthy and ready to execute the plan without taking the, the next level risk. So thinking of Molly Sedell, I was just listening to a podcast today about the training she did leading into Tokyo and she had a spectacular day and won a bronze medal, which is a total dream come true and something, you know, I dreamed about as well, but she was taking more risk in her training and that paid off. Hmm. But my flip side of being 41 versus she's 27 is it could have just blown up and I couldn't maybe didn't even make it to the start line. So going forward, now that the Olympics are done and dusted and I had, you know, a top 10 performance that I'm, that I'm proud of, I think we can start to play around with a little bit more risk because if something goes wrong in a build to a 
marathon in the next year, it um, it's not the Olympics, right? I can pull the plug and and right. and reset and pick another date down the line. But the Olympics come along every in theory every four years, so you just don't want to screw that up too badly. Melindy, are you at your limit? Do you think are you looking ahead and going, you know, you know what? I can get this time down. I can do this. I can do that. Do you are you looking at yourself now as a 41-year-old athlete and saying, "Yep, I'm I'm this is it. This is kind of peak for me." What are you looking at relative to your current position as an athlete? Yeah. Well, absolutely not. And I don't know that anyone ever thinks they're at their best or their peak until it's hindsight. <laughs> Um, but like I said, we, we were relatively cautious still going into this build. There's still tons of areas that I can explore through, um, different application of, of stress, uh, both in terms of volume and intensity and frequency. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, what's exciting now is to start to explore, okay, can I, can I chop that my, my personal best off by two minutes? What is my, and, and that I think is what's sort of driving me now is that, how can I be my best and what is my best versus necessarily chasing mm-hmm. records or times or, or places, which are very meaningful, but they're more, that's like the product that comes from seeing how good you can be. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's like the qualitative process uh, that don't look at the outcome because that'll happen if you, if you've got quality process. Yeah. hundred percent. So um, yeah, doing some analysis on, on what worked last time and then, yeah, where where in your risk equation, where are you willing to take some risk, and what is the potential, uh, you know, potential upside of of playing around? Yeah, with that? yeah, and when, and 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 in what part of this next cycle, right? So yeah, that's really interesting. But age is really, it's interesting to me. It's a um, when when you throw that term out there, everybody immediately goes to chronological, you know, this linearity of age. Um, I always look at an athlete and say it's biological. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not, you know, let's not look at this chronologically. Let's look at this biologically. Kind of like buying a car, right? How many miles are on the clock? What has this car done? You know, how does how does that work? And the interesting thing is I think there's a there's a societal kind of tag that comes with age as well. So how do you look at it? How do you look mm-hmm. at age now? It's funny because I ran into my neighbor the other day and big fan watching my race, super keen. She's like, but if they said one more time, 41 year old mother of two, I was going to break my, my television. <laughs> She's like, you're in the track and you're more than a 41 year old mother of two. Um, and if you look at the results, uh, the, the woman from Australia just behind me is mm-hmm. uh, Sinead Dever is 44 the gal behind her is the world masters record holder from Uganda. She's run two nineteen in the last year, and she is forty one. Um, the Canadian uh, behind her in thirteenth place is turning forty this year. So there were four of us in a row who are mm. masters runners, and I absolutely think that it is a social construct that we have decided that at a certain age you're officially old and you're. You're on the, the flip side. I mean, there, there might be some studies that show some relative declines in aerobic capacity in mm-hmm. VO2 max, but it's all yeah. very relative. It's, and, oh. and it can be overcome with, with training and consistency and health and all those other factors. And what I say to people is, well, the fact that I'm 41 means I have 20 more years of aerobic training under my belt than a 21-year-old. 
So exactly. And yeah. 21 years more experience of working on my mental skills and my, and all those other sort of, like we talked about doubt or believing, you know, all those mm. things that you stop having to work on. So they, they, that are, that just become ingrained in who you are in a race and that, mm. you know, sense of gratitude, you have more perspective perhaps uh, 20 years later that, of how cool it is to be out there, that sort of thing. So we need to stop thinking that we're um, past our prime at a certain, certain point and then just just kind of live in the moment. And as as you said too, um, you know, chronological versus biological age is another I think important factor. Like I've taken a good number of breaks through my career and reinvented myself as a triathlete for a period of time. Had two children, so I think that that when you talk about wear and tear on the body, if you can if you can plan in some periods of rest and recovery, then um, then you get a lot more out of your your body over a longer period of yeah. time too. Yeah. A lot of the time when I talk to biomechanists, different professionals that are approaching sport or even coming out of school, going into sport, and uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. Everybody wants to enlist. Oh, I want to be a major league strength and conditioning coach or I want to work in the major leagues as a biomechanist. And I say, yeah, I said a lot of people want to enroll in the army as generals too, but hang on a minute, right? We've got to get that got to get that uh, grounding, you know, you got to get in the trench and get your repetitions in. I will take wisdom over intelligence any day. And I think that's what the marathon is. It's wisdom, relative, not so much relative to strategy, which you know, plays a part in it, you know, with the more of these events that you run, but it's wisdom relative to physical systems and how you can manage your body, control your body at the time's where it's necessary. Would you say that's an accurate statement? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, looking at my race at about 18 kilometers, I realized that that pace was just going to be a little bit too rich for me. And that, you know, I did the math. I said, I got to double this and add five before I'm finished. Um, I got to back this off. And it started to splinter and I let the front pack go. Mm. And Mm. that was kind of a key decision point for me was that check back with myself going, "Mm, do I think this is actually sustainable? Um, No, I got to back off instead of that's, Maybe when I was younger, I might have been inclined to, I need to stick to them and go with it and yeah. and um, not let them go. And I, I don't think I would have done that as a younger athlete, let mm. them go, because I was, yep. I always wanted to be in contention and up at the front. The The last 10K of the race, I, I slowed down. Everybody mm. slowed down, but I still passed 10 yeah. people. So there were 10 people who went off on that initial pace and who Mm. ended up blowing up or dropping out. Um, And there were eight people who managed to hold it. So if I had gone out with that, if I had stayed on that pace, I could have had a spectacular run perhaps, but most likely I would have had a much worse run than I had in the end. Right. So great example. the last part of that race it was just holding on so if i had to burn those matches too early it would have it could have been very ugly you made that decision tactically within the race to pull back was it simply time splits you were looking at was there other data that you were looking at did data or did feeling primarily influence that decision primarily feeling backed up by data so I knew actually a bit earlier on, um, maybe at about 
14K, the pack surged a little bit and I, Mm. I fell off. Um, and I thought, Oh, this feels a little bit rich. I'm going to just back off. And then I got my next kilometer split and we had dropped about six seconds per kilometer from the previous kilometer. So it was like, Oh yeah, no, this is legitimately the surge that I'm feeling is, is happening. And then the pack slowed down again and I got back on, on the back of it. It, it slowed down a little bit to where we had been running the first 10, 12 K of the race at about 18 K. I think it surged a little bit again and I got that same feeling. So I can feel it before before I see the data and I just have learned over the years that you really have to trust your instincts. So I use the data as more like confirmation than, than as prescription. Yeah. But I think that's where people run into a lot of problems with marathon and, and maybe other sports, but let's talk about the marathon is that they have this idea that I want to run whatever time it is, let's say three hour marathon and I have to hit all these splits for it to happen. And if you're just on slightly the wrong side of that red, even if it's only two or three seconds, too fast. You're going to blow up and it's going to be really ugly and you're going to lose 10 minutes on the back end. But if you just, if you just are one or two or three seconds on the plus side where it's feeling so really comfortable and you feel you're thinking to yourself, I could do this forever in theory, you can make up like 20 minutes on the backside. I mean, 20 minutes is maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but you can make up so much in the last 10 K by erring on the side of caution in the first 30 30k then by going a little bit rich on the first half the blow up is just detrimental so it's just respecting the marathon really and these endurance events and knowing that it really is the last last portion of the race that that really makes or breaks your race and so many people want to be aggressive and they want to they want to stick to these paces that are uh, they could be arbitrary. They could just be a, a number that you've decided you want to go after. And that's not right. great. Um, technology that you use, technology that you trust. Is there something that you're using that like I, I can't live without in my training process? Mm-hmm. Well, I was um, a fairly late subscriber to a GPS watch anyways. Um, mm-hmm. I only started using GPS watch in 2019 leading into my first mm-hmm. marathon. And that was more because my husband who coaches me bought me one and said, you need to, you need to use this. So I know what you're doing. And it was actually really surprising to me because I didn't run as fast as I thought I did. And I didn't run as far as I thought I did on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Cause I was really used to just kind of doing, going for a 60 minute run and calling that eight miles or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I realized, Oh, when I'm really tired, I go five minute kilometers. I thought I was running four and a half minute kilometers, but I don't. And so I try not to adjust things, uh, or to, again, to be chasing these times and distances and just use, use that my GPS as as feedback to analyze afterwards. And it's super, super effective, um, when doing workouts, uh, to know what my paces are. And that helps me figure out what pace I can do a marathon at, um, by, by using that information to analyze, how I, what piece I did a workout and heart rate, this is my heart rate zones, that sort of thing. So I, I think there is huge value in that, in that data feedback. I just think that you need to, you need to kind of always be weighing the art and science side of, of training and, and of competing. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because there's so many technologies out there and that's why I always ask the question, did you feel this or was it data driven? Cause that data, you know, sometimes that you know, like the like I had a, a recovery device at one point that told me I was only fifty seven percent recovered, so I acted like I was fifty seven percent recovered, right? So, I mean, you can have that uh, 
you know that almost placebo effect from yes. um, data that's 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 not correct. Do you, do you use anything for recovery right now, Melinda? Are you, are you looking at anything? No, I mean that's funny because when we were in in Tokyo or in Japan, I asked an athlete, "Oh, how did you sleep last night?" And she said, um, "Oh, I think pretty well. Let me check." And then she went to her watch <laughs> and she scrolled, scrolled through a few. She's like, "Oh, actually, not that great. I only hit deep sleep for this many hours." And uh, and I was like. Oh my goodness. So right away. now we're relying on a watch to tell us if we had good sleep when you didn't, like when your initial reaction is that you feel rested. So, so what, what's the point of this? <laughs> Why are we yeah. using this device to make us feel bad about what we've done? You can't really change the fact that you had bad night's sleep. And I trained my first two marathons with an infant. Um, and I wasn't sleeping well. I was up three times a night nursing this baby. And if I didn't ever, if I ever felt rested and had that full night's sleep, I would never have trained. I ever woke yeah. up, you know, there was never a day when he was in the first year and a half of my second son's life that I ever felt like I had a full night's sleep, but it wasn't going to stop me from going and doing what I wanted to do with my day. Yeah. Man, I'll ask this question. We don't, we don't often talk in, in our podcast around like our product. We don't try to sell product on this. You know, we, we want to talk and, and understand our athletes, understand how practitioners use data, tech, et cetera. So, but what was it about kinetics that really made you think, hey, I want to have a conversation with these guys? Um, was there something that you just said, oh, that could be valuable data? I just like the look of the company. What, what was it that really drove you here? Well, as, as you can probably pick up from my response to the earlier questions is I'm not a hugely data-driven person. I'm definitely a go-by-feel, and I think that um, the art side of training and perceived effort are really key indicators for, for maximizing our potential and that our brains are – we can't – we shouldn't try to replace our, our brains, which are massive computers. Yeah. But at the same time, um, being able to have – data that helps us become the best athlete that we can is also super exciting. So the number of data points that you take, and then you have to actually figure out how to apply it and how to make yourself a better athlete is the stuff that I'm interested in. I don't need to know everything about my body that's not relevant, but what are the relevant things? So, um, you know, even as a, as a slight example, we were running on the same course the whole time in Sapporo leading into our race, which is, had quite a camera. It was on a corner. It was a short loop. My post tip started to flare up. Um, I would have loved to have been able to see that and see how I was loading differently in that environment. Yeah. And that would be really interesting. And are there other ways that you realize that you're, um, there's missed opportunities that, that are changeable within your training? Mm. Right. right. Yeah. And that's it. And and it's one of those things I think like we're not here to answer questions. We're here to ask the next level of questions. That's kind of our, you know, kind of this terminal evolutionary gene that sits in us at, at Kinetics where we're so interested on what's next. And to get to what's next, though, we know we've got to collect a lot of data. We've got to run even machine learning and AI through that those data sets so we can Look at you, say, look at your data, Melinda, and say, you know what? Um, like anytime you look at data, you can go in with this kind of confirmation bias of looking for something, and you'll find it. You'll you'll say, yeah, look, I think I was lateral on this foot. You know, my foot pressure felt more lateral on my right side during this run. Da da da. And sure enough, you'll go, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. And you'll go in and, and confirm, right? Go in and find it. 
the thing that's really interest, interesting to me is is us getting down into the granularity of the data that could potentially come from your foot hitting that ground so many times over the course of that race and even in your training and go, okay, let's run some AI through this. What patterns are there that we're not even looking at? You know, what's an unbiased kind of line and pattern of information that is kind of also correlating with how you feel? That feedback loop, as you indicate, is so critical. And to that point, if you're experiencing, you know, say, interior knee pain, well, does that correlate with a lateral shift of center of pressure in your foot? You know, or if you change shoes or change type of shoe or you're running a different surface, you know, how does that all fit? I think that's the next level for us internally is, is to be able to look at runners, understand the injury mechanisms that we do chronically and try to find patterns of de-risking not only your training, but also finding those data sets to really express and accelerate, you know, what you think is missing. That's where we, we get the next level of performance and that's where okay, how am I going to be the best version of myself? We're kind of the, the low hanging fruit. I've kind of, I've mastered all of that now at 20 years into the sport. So we're, let's, let's go for um, as good as we can be. Yeah. It's amazing. Let me ask this mate. Um, if, if there's a 35 year old female runner who's about to say, you know what? I want to start on this endurance journey because you've inspired so many people, not only in Canada, but in North America, I think. What advice would you give her? Well, there's been some really amazing examples of women picking up running in their their mid-30s with children and careers to go on to run really well. And Mm -hmm. in fact, Shanae Diver, who was 10, started in her mid-30s as well. She's an example. Um, and in triathlon, there's tons of people who came from multi-sport backgrounds who then become really top triathletes. So I think, I think, um, you know, letting go of some of that, uh, fear of not having grown up doing this sport and, and just opening yourself up to the process and be willing to learn and to work hard, but be smart about it. Um, you don't want to get injured in your first few months of, of starting. So like seeing it as a long-term project that takes consistency and that takes uh, that, that balance of hard work, but being smart about it. I mean, I hear a lot of the success stories for sure, but I know how rewarding and how exhilarating it is to be a runner and to do these races and to join the community of runners um, and the network and, and how, positively it impacts so many people's lives once they take up the sport of running and and start seeing what they can do with it. Mm, Exactly. It's, it's amazing. Like I'll remember in Paris standing under the starting uh, point for that race in 2000. It's like, it's right under the Arc de Triomphe. You're right there. And I would, I went in like I, you know, played some professional baseball and I was a swimmer and I went into this like looking around, I got game face on, I'm looking at everybody left and right, I'm, I'm ready to run. And there was this overwhelming sense of community. It's like, just cool your jets, pal, right? Yeah, we're all in this together. We're all going to make, you know, our, our goal is just to get through and, and, and pull this off. And that was one thing that I really noticed is that sense of community with, uh, with runners. I want to wrap up here. Is there anything you want to to say into our space at this point? I'm trying to trying to share my journey as as openly as I can, and and I think part mm. of what has inspired me in the last few years is is building this connection and community among other runners, and feeling like 
my performance matters um, beyond just myself and vice versa. People's performances inspire me as well and what they're doing. Um, and so as, as, as part of that, and also the feeling of being really grateful that I've had an opportunity to work with some of the top resources in the world, coaches, sports scientists, um, have that, had access to, to, to really great information. Um, so I've started to put together, uh, a series on YouTube called win or learn. So the idea that you're, you know, you're striving to be your best, but you're always learning along the way. Um, so, you know, that's one way that, that I'm trying to help other people, uh, have access to some of the great resources that I've had access to. So I interview people in a short format, later 10 minutes long. Um, so my physiotherapist, my strength and conditioning coach. And then I also just recently started a, a newsletter that people can sign up for that is maybe a little bit more detailed than just your typical Instagram, like one paragraph. So if people really want to read into, you know, my debrief of my race, I put it up on my, on my newsletter. Um, so both those things are accessed through my website, which is just my first name dot last name, lindyelmore.com. That's beautiful. Win or learn is a phenomenal title because I think I always kind of lay this out. I've, I've, I've done this diagram, I think, probably 20 times in the last month looking at an athlete. And I always say emotion, emotional foundation. Then we've got the cognitive side. Yeah, but it all stems from emotion, how we think. And then we go into physical systems, your technical ability, your tactical use of, of, of those skills, and then strategic use over a season of game, what that looks like and how that outcome feeds back into the emotional kind of model right and and it, and it all comes to fruition and win or you know it's like it, i used to use the term there's no such thing as failure there's only feedback failure is the emotional negative that you wrap that in let's make sure that it's feedback you didn't there wasn't a loss this was feedback and we're going to use that feedback to construct and, and quite often I think we do a better job of dissecting failure to understand mm -hmm. why than we do of dissecting winning Half the time, right? It's like you, you, you just end up in that headspace that enables that dissection. But I think emotionally wrapping this correctly is something that I think is uh, that's that's significant and should not be. Um, you you can't underline that any any more. And I think that title's just absolutely perfect. Awesome, thanks. Beautiful. Well, Melindy, thank you so much for this time. I know we're at time, and um, like I could talk to you all day about this. Just to, you know, it's like. Let's try getting inside of the yeah we, we we have to right and it's like it's like it's, it's like trying to understand the operating system on our computers right I, I like to understand your operating system because I think you're operating um, outside of what would be considered traditional framework or outside of traditional expectation as mm -hmm. a 41 year old mother of two and an athlete that has inspired so many people I mean I can't tell you the announcement that you were going to be involved with us at Kinetics, mate. Um, you know, we had to get massage therapists in to, you know, work on the cheeks from everybody's smile. It was incredible. So I'm likewise, just know you've, you, you, you've got a lot of fans inside of our company. That's for sure. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm really excited too about seeing what, what's, what's going to happen over the next few years. I mean, it's a really, yeah. uh, it's an amazing idea with so many applications and, and absolutely the team already I can tell has, has so many strengths and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting my, get my hands right in, 
into things and helping out as best I can. Well, I can't wait till we've got this product that we can ship over to you and uh, that you've, and you'll have some in your hands and play with and give it a feel. I mean, the things that we've got some, we're our own worst enemy because we like, we don't want the perfect product out in the market because that's impossible because we'll keep chasing it down. Right. But we want something that is scientifically accurate and credible relative to the data that's coming off it because someone like you has to transact on that data and, and make decisions around it that are, that could be game changing decisions. So we're really holding that bar. Durability is the other thing, right? When you're putting anything in, in, in a shoe, it's like running on a laptop, right? All of a sudden, and we've got this, we've got this kind of rigid flex kind of oxymoron kind of thing going on relative to hardware. And I, I look around the room sometimes and I go, someone once said to me, if you look around the room and you're the smartest person in the room, get out of the room. I look around this room. I'm going to be here for years because the <laughs> intelligence that's in the room that we're in is stunning. It's just absolutely stunning. So we think we've got the right people in the right seats to solve a problem that has been unsolvable for many companies. But you're like not doing this in an ivory tower is also part of that culture. And I think that's something we're going to lean into you for as well is your insight and your feeling and don't hold back. We will take, we'll take every criticism under the sun, but we want this to be a tool that you can use for, for, to level up your next run and for your, you know, who you're coaching as well. And we also think that there's a massive part of community that could digitally be amassed with, with and through this product. So mate, I think it's an exciting time to be here and, uh, I, look, you are an absolute bullseye for this company relative to being engaged with us. So I can't thank you enough. And I'm just looking forward to talking to you more, mate. Likewise. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's get it rolling. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on the Human Kinesome Project podcast. Hey, find out more about Melinda Elmore at melindielmore.com and look for a series of spectacular videos on win or learn team, the game is just beginning.